every Wednesday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A show about endurance, human performance, and what it really means to feel alive and present. Presented to you by Javier Pineda. Dairy is inflammatory by nature. It's got all these hormones being sold to you as this great source of calcium. It's not. A greater source of calcium is actually dark leafy greens. Hmm. I promise you that. There's a line between being positive about who you are and, and living in your own skin and people accepting that, so body positivity, and there's a difference between that and promoting it. Welcome, Mickey, to another episode of the Endurance Cartel Podcast. Dr. Mickey Witt. Mickey, I was looking at your resume and uh, you being my friend for such a long time, it never dawned on me to look and actually see how much you have. You're a neuroscientist. You're a professor at University of Miami. You're a two-time Ironman competitor. Mom of two. Shit, there's no excuses. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't, was this before social media, I bet, because I mean, honestly, (laughs) social media, there's a joke going around. I mean, saying it's like, if just imagine how much time you would have and how much degrees you would have if you did not involve yourself so much in social media, but clearly. (laughs) And uh, tell me, Nikki, what is a neuroscientist? In my words, thanks for having me, Javi. I'm so glad to be to be here, to be chatting officially as a guest on your podcast. I feel very honored. As a neuroscientist, it's basically someone who studies the brain, uh, brain behavioral activity, uh, different mechanisms that have to do with whatever it is you're curious about um, and how the brain kind of integrates different things to make those processes happen. So my particular area of interest when I was getting my doctorate was obesity, metabolism, body weight regulation. And I studied various genes, different neuropeptides, different uh, pathways that have to do with ultimately metabolism, body weight regulation, and, uh, and ultimately obesity and such. So that's certainly my area of expertise. Uh, but I've since been able to sort of springboard that into, uh, as you mentioned, I teach at University of Miami. Uh, I've been teaching for around 10 years on the undergrad campus, uh, both graduate and undergraduate students who are interested in obesity and want to learn a little bit more about kind of how the brain plays a role in that. So yeah, that's my quick definition for you. Why obesity? Obesity of all the things, uh, why obesity? Obesity has always been fascinating to me. I think uh, as a as a teenager, I was overweight as uh-huh. a 15, 14 year old. And once I got to be 16, I started getting interested just personally in fitness and health and nutrition and saw an impact, started to get fit, get strong, lose weight, uh, and was educating myself. Now we're talking the mid to late nineties, mid nineties. So pre, we had an internet. Yes, you recall, but it wasn't what it is today. So (laughs) I was reading like nutrition and health magazines, uh, you know, and educating myself in that way. And obviously, you know, that's, there's a limit to that in terms of what you can learn. And so when I went to college, I studied psychology, loved it, but still had a passion for nutrition and health and performance and, uh, went on to grad school where I was able to ask more of the science behind 
you know, body weight regulation, nutrition, health, kind of melding all these things and getting answers because, uh, while I love psychology, it's a lot of, um, theorizing about behavior, whereas, which is fine, which is good. It's helpful and it has its place. But then there was the neuroscience where you really get at the cell biology at the level of, you know, why is, why are certain things happening? Why are some people more prone to being overweight while others aren't, you know, we still have a problem, you know, an obesity epidemic in this country. So to me, it was always fascinating, but hitting the personal note for me, as far as, you know, someone who had transformed my body weight, it was, um, you know, wanting to learn more and more and more and how can I apply the science, you know, and help others. Yeah, because obesity in the U.S. is uh, it's very little, no? I mean, <laughs> honestly, honestly, it's um, such a, we can go so many ways here in our, in our conversation here today, but you're a two-time Ironman. And, um, and you, you did this while you were studying uh, obesity, you were, stu- you were getting your PhD. When did the, the Ironmans happen in, in a... The timing of all that. Yeah. So I was always a runner. I in- got introduced to the sport of triathlon, our shared passion. Of course. At later on, uh, I would say I was, ov- I was a runner for over a decade before I started down the triathlon rabbit hole and <laughs> got mm-hmm. hooked like everyone else does. I was a runner for about a little over 10 years when I had signed up for a triathlon on a whim while I was in grad school. So I was finishing my PhD. I had met my uh, current husband now, but he was my boyfriend and then my fiance at the time. But he was a law student. I was a grad student. And one of his professors, sadly, was diagnosed with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. You guys might remember the uh, ice bucket challenge, yeah. uh, bringing attention and awareness to that. And so I did a triathlon to raise money and awareness for ALS, thinking it was a one-off thing. Like, I'm a runner. I'm just going to do this swim, bike, run thing. Had no idea, one, that I would love it as much as I did, and two, that it was a sport. <laughs> Quite True frankly, that. I didn't know that it was this you know, that triathlon was this bohemoth that it is, that growing, burgeoning, multi-sport, you know, lifestyle. And so like many others who get into the sport, got hooked and uh, there was no looking back after that. But that was at towards the end of my PhD. And then uh, after that was my postdoc and other things like that. I was still in the triathlon world. The cycling is what came along with, for triathlon for me, I had been a swimmer as a uh, swam on swim teams as a youth. I'd, I'd been a runner for 10 years plus at that point around. And it, the biking was the newest thing for me. So I was determined to really uh, get at it and learn how to get stronger. And that's probably when I, start, I met you initially yeah. as my spin instructor way back when, when I first moved <laughs> yeah, to Miami. Way back in the heyday. Yeah. When I first moved to Miami about 14 years ago was, um, I was like two, three years into my cycling slash triathlon uh, passion. So I was a burgeoning triathlete at the time. Such a curious sport. I, I always compare triathlons or Ironman, doing Ironmans with kind of like being at a bar and just saying, <laughs> oh, I one more, one more. I'll stay for one more. Yeah. When you least expect that you're just dive in and so drunk up your butt that you can just leave that easy. But yeah. let me ask you something curious. While you were training for all these, uh, for all these Ironmans and all these races, with all that knowledge that you had in the back of your head, I mean, how much did you apply to your trainings? How much did you apply to your lifestyle during training? Because I don't know if you noticed, and um, just people are, are getting bigger, bigger yeah. and bigger, even though they're in the sport. And I don't mean to uh, rub feathers here, but uh, that's my personal observation. 
Sure. I've, I've met a lot of people that have been in the sport count like 10 plus years. And, uh, I mean, it's like they're bigger than ever. Yeah. And, uh, it's just a lot of inflammation probably, or the trainings are just not for them, or they go back home and just sack the fridge or order McDonald's or pizza or whatever that is. What's your take on all that on your training and then where people are in the sport right now? Yeah, no, the first, that's a great question. The first part of your question, uh, I absolutely applied, you know, what I know about nutrition science to my performance in the sport, especially as I was dabbling in the endurance side of it. I was always liking the endurance part of sport for marathon, for uh, ultimately for triathlon. I kept getting into longer distances and loved it. And you do your own kind of personal dabbling with what works for you nutrition wise. But certainly I, I trust experts. I have friends that are exercise physiologists. I was always running things by them because you can know what uh, you know textbook knowledge makes sense for you, but then keeping up with what's current in the academic science, what's being published is important as well, especially as endurance uh, sports have become more and more popular, we're starting to get a bigger pool of athletes that we can test on and publish, you know, studies on. And so first part of your question, absolutely. I applied what I know. I can't, we can't turn off our brains in the way we think. So of course, I'm always asking those questions. You know, from the times you've trained me, uh, when I needed to up my, uh, my strength, I'm always asking kind of those science questions because yep. to me, that's truth. You know, science is meant to be unbiased. It's meant to be, what is the, what does the data say? You know? And so to me, that's constant seeking of truth. Uh, the second part of your question though, about why we're seeing people who are larger and larger, um, not only partaking in sport, but just in general, I think it gets back to a gaping black hole in health literacy in this country, as well as in, uh, the world. And as a nutrition scientist, as someone who teaches uh, nutrition science, it is very sad to see that the fact that there is consensus about what's optimal for, uh, for us as a human species, for us as endurance athletes, like what is the optimal diet? There's information there. We know it. Mm -hmm. But there's so much nutrition confusion out there as a result of many factors at play who have a stake in making sure you continue to eat the way you eat. So I'm not going to blame mm. one, you know, given entity on the fact that we've got rising rates of obesity and overweight in this country and in the sport, but it, there are so many factors at play that make sure people continue to eat how they eat, make sure that they think it's okay that uh, they reward themselves with whatever, you know, unhealthy thing that it is that they're eating. There's, it's by no mistake that the number one killer of men and women on planet earth is heart disease. Heart disease hmm. comes very simply from, you know, increased amounts of saturated fat and cholesterol that ends up in our uh, clogging our arteries, plaques rupture. We have a heart attack and usually that's our last hmm. one. So it all links back to diet and people don't see that connection is by no mistake. Um, people want to see that bacon is back. People want to see that butter is back. Is it really though? Does it really look healthy to you? <laughs> I mean, we could go on and on about the nutrition science part of it, but I think it has to do a lot with the, the nutrition confusion that is it, that is there and being propped up by industry, by people, by entities that benefit from people still consuming their products, even though they know their products are not good for them, you know? And, uh, when we come to talk about fads, you know, remember there was the paleo yeah. fad, now the keto fad, mm -hmm. now the vegan I mean, so everything is kind of like a just I would just partake on this uh, on this fad for a while until it don't, no longer works, or now the 
fasting for uh -huh. X amount of hours. Uh -huh. And uh, mind you, I've seen increment like th their weights in increase. Like I have, I trained this person who fasts for I don't know how many hours, but the guy doesn't seem to his metabolism doesn't seem to rev up. I mean, so basically the fasting is not working for this person, or this person just stops eating and this just eats and just binges. Uh -huh. yeah. I've seen also a lot of the vegan, plant-based or vegetarians mm -hmm. that are humongous. Mm -hmm. And I hate the word humongous. I'm so sorry. I'm, like, I'm just going to stop using. They're just a little bit above par. Okay. Let's, let's put it like that. So, so my point is, I mean, it's, it all comes down to how many calories you're putting in your mouth. Doesn't matter if it's organic or, or what it's how many calories you're putting in. It all comes down to that, no? So the calories, a calorie is a calorie argument is not so much the case anymore. I mean, a hundred calories of almonds versus a hundred calories of Skittles, you know, if I gave them to you, they're going to be very different. And in terms of your your glycemic response, which is how your blood sugar reacts to the consumption of that 100 calories of almonds versus the 100 calories right. of Skittles are very different, right? The Skittles are going to get metabolized like that very quickly. Um, glucose is going to rush into your bloodstream. You're going to spike your blood glucose. And then your body, your pancreas has to work hard to get the insulin out to push the glucose out of the blood and into our cells very rapid mm -hmm. rise and then fall below what your baseline blood sugar should be. Whereas 100 calories of almonds carries with it the phytonutrients, the fiber, all the other things that your body and your digestive system is meant to break down on its own. It's going to take a lot longer to digest that. You're not going to see that rapid rise in blood sugar um, and you're going to have a more steady decline post-consumption of that. And so a calorie is not so much a calorie, right? It, it really... Mm. the Go back to your point about fads and to, and you had mentioned something about um, vegan and being a being a trend. I say, I, I will say this, I'm an ascriber and I've been for very many years of a whole food plant-based diet and I've been that way for decades. But that's not, say, that's not to say I tell anyone that um, you must be vegan. I say there's a difference between eating a whole foods, mostly plants diet and a vegan diet because a vegan diet is really just eschewing animal products. Whole foods, mostly plants, is literally that. Plants and food that look like it came in nature, right? You've got your legumes, which is beans, split peas, chickpeas, lentils. Those are nutritional powerhouses. The amount of fiber that we get from legumes, from plants, which is the only place we can get fiber, is tremendous off the charts. And um, it's so good for us to consume that in a, a state where we've got the majority of people consuming 60% of their plate is ultra-processed foods and counting I am scared for the state of our nation, for the chronic disease rates to continue to skyrocket uh, because ultra processed means exactly that. I tell my students, my college students, aim to crowd your plate with as many things that look like they did as they came in nature. <laughs> and then with whatever's left over after you've eaten all that, squeeze in whatever other stuff you want, want to eat after that. But if you crowd your plate with the good stuff, there's less room for the, the stuff that'll harm you, so to speak. Because you can be a junk food vegan. You know, you can eat, you know, French fries and Oreos and those are still vegan, right? That's not what I'm saying is healthy for you, but whole foods... Whole foods, mostly plants, things that look like they came in nature are going to benefit you in so many ways uh, from a performance standpoint. But I want to circle back to something you mentioned about uh, the fad diets with the, uh, with the fasting. This, as a scientist, gets me, I guess, annoyed, I'll say, is because mm. people misapply what the science is saying. So, for example, 
intermittent fasting or what what's actually better termed as what we call time-restricted feeding uh, mm -hmm. has been shown to be beneficial in various ways when it comes to metabolism, body weight regulation, blood sugar control. But people, people don't apply it the way it was done in the studies. <laughs> time-restricted feeding, meaning you're, you're literally not consuming food for a schedule of what, 16 to 8, 12 to 12, something like that, where for uh, you know, a solid period of time, you have no influx of calories. So I'm not, so mm -hmm. I don't know if you're talking about, you know, you gave an example of someone who it doesn't seem to be working for them. Like, are they really not eating? Are they really not consuming calories during that period of time? Are they, are they, are they having their coffee with their sugar and their cream and all that? It's just a misapplication of what it means. And of course, Americans, we like to take things to extremes. And so it's just, it's frustrating because it's misapplied and then it's not effective because it's not being utilized properly, you know? So uh, there are so many ways we could go about why it's not quote unquote working for certain people. Same thing goes for, you had said, how come some people's, you know, their body frames don't look like they're ascribing to this healthy lifestyle. Maybe they are being a junk food vegan, you know, maybe mm -hmm. they just started their journey. You know, there's so many, I guess, uh, questions we can ask about one's application of some of these fads. But at the end of the day, I think it goes down to people misinterpreting or misapplying what they hear is supposed to be helpful for them and then it being not successful. And then again, this goes back, circles back. This is just this endless cycle of, I guess I should just eat how I'm eating because that didn't work. It's just, ah, it's frustrating. So it's basically more like a habit kind of thing in the sense of, all right, uh, I eat at, at 1040, usually I get hungry, and your body starts getting trained to eat at 1040 sure. for no reason at all. Sometimes you may not even be hungry, and you just look at the clock, oh, wow, I'm hungry. Right. So it's it kind of just, it becomes, you've trained your body to eat at certain times. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess it's just getting to learn your body more, per uh -huh. se? Yeah, listening to your body, listening to your actual hunger cues. We have what we call two ways. We have stretch receptors in our guts that actually detect fullness physically. Mm -hmm. And they send a signal right. to the brain to say like, you're physically full. And then chemical receptors as well that detect the influx of, of of macronutrients, you know, carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins. So mm -hmm. there are two ways, many ways. Those are just two simple ones, like from the periphery to the brain as to how we integrate uh, that process of, oh, we should, we're, we're satiated now. We should be stopping eating. We should feel full now. Like the brain gets those messages. There's so many different kind of chemical messengers that in, are involved in that process. But to be very simple, like those things happen. If we start ignoring those cues, we're lost. You know, we run down a, a trail of, you know, people just seeking palatable food, like highly yummy food, right? And the food industry wants that too, because they make food that tastes good and want you to buy more and more and want to sell you that it's healthy. But I always say, if there's a barcode, like how healthy is it? I'm not saying that stuff with barcodes isn't healthy. I buy stuff with barcodes. <laughs> I don't want to get demonized no. for that. But um, <laughs> but the less food with barcodes, the more likely you're getting something from nature, right? That's the way that uh, Mother Nature had prepared that food for us. And the less likely we're going to have something processed in a way, because processed food is processed down from how it was whole in a way to make you want to consume more. Because at the end of the day, the food manufacturers want you to consume more. It's the dollar sign is their bottom line. It's not your health right. necessarily, you know? So the more, I always say like the more a product is trying to sell me on the health of 
it, <laughs> the more skeptical I True. am. And uh, yeah, there's just, there's so many ways we can look at that problem. <laughs> this kind of ties in with uh, how you're sleeping, how much you're training, how much you're working, how much, basically how much stress you're putting in your daily living. I come in and I just uh, overtrain myself, or overwork myself, and then I just come down with uh, five five hours of sleep, four hours of sleep. And uh, next day, I'm just going to be stuffing myself with plenty of uh, plenty of sugar just to keep going, just adding caffeine to my to my diet. And basically, it's a deadly roller coaster. Am I not in the yeah? Yes, right, you're uh, spot on. You're spot on. I actually am in the middle of writing an exam. Uh, before this interview, I was writing an exam for my students. And one of the questions or some of the questions have to do with um, exactly oh, what shit, you just touched on. Yeah, I should, <laughs> <laughs> You're touching on exactly one of the things I'm asking them about, which is stuff that we've discussed, which uh -huh. is the evidence having to do with um, sleep disruptions. We call that circadian disruption and um, impact on one's likelihood of being obese or having metabolic problems. You are spot on when you're exhausted. First of all, your brain, no matter what, exhausted or not, your brain is the the organ in your body that's going to grab whatever um, glucose is available. Everything that you consume mm -hmm. is going to get broken down into glucose. Whether you're eating carb rich right. foods, you know, protein, lipid, everything. Ultimately, your body wants glucose is the easiest thing for it to use for energy, and so your brain is going to hog that up. You're tired. Your brain's going to be foggy. It's going to want to work the less the less amount of work it can do as possible to stay awake, alert functioning, it's going to want. And to be able to do that, uh, glucose is the best because it doesn't require any energy investment by your brain in order to break down anything into glucose. If you take in carb-rich foods, um, right. simple carbs, there's a difference between simple and complex carbs. But when you're tired, you reach for those easy things because you know it's going to perk you up. You know It's going to be that readily available. Uh, whether you realize it or not, or you recognize it or not, that's why you know your brain wants the easy carbs. Um, because it needs it, it wants it, it's, it's tired. Every single cell in our body actually has a circadian clock. It functions in a circadian cycle. I've actually, uh, they've done studies that when you're in complete darkness, our body actually craves 25 hour cycle, not 24. <laughs> so we're already oh, sleep deprived wow. by forcing uh -huh. us on a 24 hour, <laughs> so to speak. But, um, nonetheless, when you mess with that, every cell in your body gets confused, you know, in a way your body craves that synchronicity, that 20. Now we have, we set it at 24, but that 24 hour synchronicity in order for everything to function optimally. So yeah, when, when you find that sweet spot, there's different studies that look at the amount of hours, but as an athlete, especially when I was doing Ironman heavily, uh, I, I just, and training for, you know, long distance heavily doing the endurance, uh, sport. I personally, this is just an anecdote was fine with less sleep than most than average, but mm -hmm. that was how I was already sleeping pre or post uh, Ironman. I just, I functioned well and not every, everybody knows their sweet spot, I suppose, you know, right. I don't think yeah. that there's, I, there is definitely literature out there, um, linking the shorter and longer sleep to metabolic disturbances and that there's some middle sweet spot. But, um, I think that's such an individual thing. I think there's so much out there. I think your body can and will adapt, but if you're fighting, a an uphill battle against what the amount of sleep your body is craving, then, you know, you got to make amends with it at some point. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, but I, I was thinking of the, the continuous glucose monitoring, mm -hmm. monitoring. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are using it. Uh, a lot of people are just loving yeah. it. Uh, kind of 
tells you that sweet spot that you're sure. talking about and uh, what foods kind of react more to each individual. Like it can af- something can affect me more than it can affect you, but therefore we can generally apply it as this is the food or this is the, what you should be eating. This is where generalization just comes. I mean, it's it's just obsolete. Yeah, I love the I love the newest tools that are coming about. C- continuous glucose monitoring becoming available, readily available, you know, to to people. I mean, tech obsessed triathletes, you know, we're the perfect uh, subject group for this. That's right? what we do. We buy <laughs> um, the newest trends. They sell, they sell us totally, two seconds. We'll buy it. Totally. The thing is this, you know, when you think about what your body does with an influx of glucose, though, everybody's different in terms of how sensitive they are. So to the influx of glucose. So in other words, you consume a meal and your body ultimately breaks it down into glucose that ends into your blood, gets up in your bloodstream. From your bloodstream, your pancreas now detects, oh, there's insulin in the blood, in the blood. And we need to shuttle it out of the blood and into the cells so that we can use it, whether it's to do uh, you know, a hundred mile bike ride, whether it's to perform mm-hmm. in a race, whether it's to stay awake during a board meeting, your body detects it and your pancreas specifically then sends insulin, the hormone that gets made in the beta cells of our pancreas out into the blood to shuttle that glucose out. Otherwise we'd walk around super hyperglycemic, meaning we have high right. blood sugar. We walk around with a baseline level, a steady level, um, of, of blood sugar. And so our bodies, our brain and our organs, everything wants to strive for homeostasis. And so the continuous glucose monitoring is good for information, right? But it's how we apply it, right? So your sensitivity to an influx of glucose may be a very different than my pancreas sensitivity than somebody else's, right? So it's a matter of using this information wisely, so to speak, um, so that we're not misunderstanding what's happening. And then if we haven't taken in glucose from a meal, but we're out there for you know hours on end on our bike, we'll detect a, lo- a, a lower amount. Um, at some point, our um, our liver is going to release glucose from the stored glycogen that it has both in the liver and the cell- skeletal muscle. And so these are all mechanisms for our body to get our blood sugar to where it's supposed to be happy in this happy homeostatic, you know, balanced amount. So it's just understanding the science really is my big thing on utilizing any tool, utilizing any information that people get, you know, want to apply it to their training is like really, you know, get at the science, you know, find a trustworthy source, a person, you and me, our podcast, you know, to talk about this episode, to talk about these things because, um, nothing exists in a vacuum. Right. And so to, to try to apply things that have a bigger, more intricate, complex system behind it, um, to something really simply is I think, uh, a misapplication and a missed opportunity for someone to really learn a little bit more about their bodies, you know, and their performance. And you mentioned uh, two things. Actually, when we uh, when we're getting information, we're feeding ourselves with so much information now more than ever. Uh, we got so many social platforms. We have then go to class, or then we actually listen to a podcast. Then we listen, we read a book, or listen to a book on Audible. Uh-huh. And we have all these different sources coming in. Yeah. Of what is good for you, mm-hmm. what you should be doing. And this is the truth kind of thing. <laughs> Let's say there is a sweet spot. Let's say if I want to start going for a plant-based diet. Uh-huh. Okay. So a whole foods plant-based diet and I go 80% of it or 
60 to 80 percent. Mm-hmm. And then I'll save the other uh, 40 to 20 percent on maybe some uh, a turkey, a meat, a piece of meat or something. And uh, where's your stand on that? I'm finding that little sweet spot of all this information getting in. Uh-huh. The sweet spot on the, on the info getting on the, in. On basically, let's say I just want to make start making a change in my body. Sure. I do I, do I stop the, the with the, all the meat, everything around me and just go whole food plant-based or can I just slowly start getting myself into that? Into that pattern. Yeah. It's a matter of, are you a Band-Aid ripper or are you a wean yourself off type of person, right? (laughs) I think um, as far as the information overload in terms of all the influencers, all the self-proclaimed experts out there, we have to be really careful. You know, there are so many of them. It's, it's, it makes my job, people's job who are, you know, scientists who, who study the science and who kind of know what the scientific consensus is on certain things and what the studies mean. Um, it makes our job that much harder when people are out there kind of misinterpreting, not maybe not even maliciously or purposefully, but they're out there misinterpreting the science and, you know, it's giving us one step forward, two steps back when people are, you know, confused always, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the things I do recommend to my students is to pull the studies that are being cited in whatever mainstream press or on, uh, on Instagram or some blogger is, you know, uh, out there promoting, pull the study and, and critically read it yourself. And if it sounds like Greek to you, reach out to people in that field and get assistance, you know, uh, you know, uh, because you have to be able to think critically. You can't just be able to take information and, and say that this is, this must be the truth because this person seems legit, you know? Right. As far as being able to apply whole foods, plant-based diet to performance, you know, I, I am a big fan of crowding your plate with as many whole foods, mostly plants as possible. And then with whatever room is left over in your belly and your plate after you've eaten all that stuff, fine, put whatever it is you need to. But um, from an inflammation standpoint, it's from for an athletic performance, especially endurance athlete standpoint, you want, you want very low, if not no inflammation. The more mm-hmm. your inflammatory system is revved up, the um, less capable it is to perform for you. And so um, you need to have really good vasodilation. And when you have saturated fat and cholesterol, which comes from animal products, like, you know, eggs and meat doesn't come from plants, except, you know, you'll get some saturated fat in like coconut oils, one source, palm oils, another, but those are very few plant-based sources um, that exist that come, that provide saturated fat and cholesterol. Again, Mm -hmm. linked back to our number one cause of death, heart disease, but also linked back to making your blood more viscous. And as an athlete, you don't want to have your blood moving slow as you're trying to oxygenate, right? And as you're trying to perform, the the mm. less viscous it is, the better for you for, perform- for performance. So the less cholesterol and saturated fat you have in it, the better. The easiest way to kind of get in that direction, if you're kind of eating a higher fat diet than you'd like uh, because you've been sold on keto or whatever. (laughs) I say the easiest way, the first step, I think the easiest way in today's day and age in 2022 is to ditch the dairy 
because dairy is inflammatory by nature. It's got all these hormones being sold to you as this great source of calcium. It's not. A greater source of calcium is actually dark leafy greens. Hmm. I promise you that. <laughs> this, don't believe me. Believe the science. I, I'll send I, you the I, studies. I, I, I'm believing a doctor. Um, I'm, I'm all the crap the though. Yeah, all the crap in the in the dairy. You and, and I say this in 2022 because you go down the dairy aisle in the store and you see a gazillion options, you know, from soy to almond to oat. I say the unsweetened's better uh, than not. If you're going to go on the nutritional profile in terms of which one's better, I'm going to say soy, but anything that's not dairy is better for you <laughs> than the dairy hmm. alternative because it doesn't have all that crap in it. It's not going to rev your, um, your, your inflammation up. It's not going to have your immune system on overdrive. It's going to allow all of that, um, your body to calm down and be able to perform for you better. I promise you. And it's so easy to do nowadays. Oh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I mean, it's every time I... <laughs> The thing is, every time I go to, um, you know, you know, my wife's French and uh, every time we go to France, of course, instead of uh, the dessert is my French cheese. There you go. Yeah. Ah, man. It's, uh, and not that I'm, I'm, I crave cheese. No, I don't, but it's, it's there. It's in front of me. Right. I'll, 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 I'll hammer down. Sure. But, um, it's basically, yeah, I, I get, I get your point. I mean, I, I don't think the uh, people in Europe are going to appreciate not having any cheese, but, um, just wanted to ask you how, I know it's, it's a little bit controversial. We discussed about this in the past, about uh, overweight mannequins. Uh-huh. And um, I, don't, I, I don't know what to think of it. I, I don't, it's, it's kind of gives me the impression that companies have just uh, folded and it's like, you know what, can't beat them, join them. I mean, these, uh, uh, the U.S. is clearly not going to go into that healthy spot kind of thing that we, where we would love to for our, our country to go versus countries in Europe. I'll give you an example so that when I try a top for a cycling top, yeah, if I would pick a small, which is my size, that thing would not Drape fit. Drape on you. For, yeah, you're probably uh -huh. a triple XL. It's just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, glove. I'm not, I'm, I, yeah. I am like a little sausage. Yeah. But then when I come here and I put a small on, yeah, it fits. <laughs> and uh, that just says the parameters of, okay, this is, the U.S. is obviously a, a bit bigger, so it just make the smalls a little bit bigger. Sure. Um, what's uh, I know it's a it's a very contra. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. I just wanted to uh, state that out that it's yeah. uh, kind of giving permission to everybody. Says you know what it's okay. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this before um, offline, but my my take on that is there's a line between body positivity movement, which I think is a really good thing. Everyone deserves to feel good in their own skin and not feel ashamed for how they look. But there's a line between that and being uh, complacent about the um, one's one's health if it's actually in a deleterious state, if it's in a state of obesity or overweight. There's a line between being positive about who you are and, and living in your own skin and people accepting that, so body positivity, and there's a difference between that and promoting it, right? Mm -hmm. And I, so I think that I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for the companies and I can't say that they give up on, you know, the country actually getting healthy. Uh, but I do think they see it as an a marketing opportunity and consumers that they miss out on if they don't target them. Right. And so yeah. I think that again, it's a money grab, so to speak. It's a way to get consumers that would otherwise think I can't wear that, you know, but that mannequin looks like me or that model looks like me wearing that outfit. Maybe I could wear that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's 
it's an interesting, certainly controversial area to go in, but it shouldn't be when we talk about the fact that we can all agree we should all feel good in our own skin, but we should also be able to accept when someone's health is not in the best state, right? And accept whether or not they're, you know, blood biomarkers, for instance, their cholesterol, their saturated fat, their amount of body fat is in a range that puts them at risk for early death or chronic uh-huh. disease. So uh, we have to get real with that. And we can do that. I think there's a way where we can meet both, be, be both positive about our all of our bodies and shapes and sizes, as well as still acknowledge that not all of them are in the best place for overall health and longevity. Kind of sad, you know, because I mean, you were mentioning also that the blue markers and uh, the blue zones. Yes. Yeah, the, uh, the blue zones. Yeah. Blue zones. Explain what the blue zones are, first of all. So the blue zones are regions of the world where a uh, study by Dan Butner, studies by Dan Butner and colleagues uh, who were funded by the National Geographic, went about uh, finding pockets of places on the globe where people not only lived longer than average. But there were large amounts of people in these areas, extraordinarily large amounts of people in these particular areas that lived longer and healthier. So we're not talking your 100 plus year old. So there was a higher amount of centenarians, people who are 100 plus, not just 100 plus and like existing, 100 plus and biking every day, swimming, going to their neighbors, cooking, living a full life Mm. still. Mm -hmm. And so that fascinated them to the point where they're called the blue zones because he started circling them with blue. (laughs) It has nothing to do with, you know, the region being blue (laughs) or anything like that. Uh, And they started looking at basic principles in those regions because they were all in different places around the world uh, and tried to see what are kind of the common principles that exist in these regions that could possibly explain this great amount of long-lived people, these people who are living such long, fruitful lives. Uh, And they came up with, I think, nine principles that were common in each of those areas. Most of them, I don't think I'm going to remember them all off the top of my head, but I know that most of them consumed largely plant-based diets. They drank uh, a little bit of alcohol once a day, I think like one glass of wine in the evening. <laughs> Though the the one population, the one blue zone in America is actually in Loma Linda, California, that is a Seventh-day Adventist. They are actually teetotalers, though some of them do huh. drink. So they have some cool studies looking at that population, which is awesome. A sense of spirituality, um, but it doesn't have to be the same one, but just some sense of that. They have a downshift. They call that ikigai, where it's this downshift that they have incorporated in their day, no matter what, that they take time to downshift. Um, Hmm. A sense of community, uh, a sense of importance with family. Uh, Those are some of the key ones that I recall off the top of my head. But physical activity, the environments around them are built for that, where they can Mm -hmm. do active transport. You and I, we talk about endurance you know, endurance triathlon, we talk about racing as sport, sure, but they do, you know, activity for, for activity's sake from getting from point A to B, you know, for transport. So, um, yeah, all of these things were found to be common threads amongst people living the longest lives, the longest, healthiest lives in the world. And, uh, very fascinating, uh, Dan Butner published that blue zones book and now they're, they're funding various, uh, projects around, I want to say, past two years, they funded some projects to help get places to kind of blue zonerize themselves, get themselves so that people can uh, live in these kind of 15-minute cities where they can 
get to all the things they need to be, whether biking, walking, or easy um, micro mobility type transport within a 15 minute time period, you know, to, to your place of worship, to your school, to your libraries, to your entertainment, to your stores, that kind of thing, you know, without like, kind of walking us away from, yeah, car dependent, uh, car dependency. And um, that's a good thing. What country was the highest ranked? Do you remember that one? Oh, I don't know if they ranked the all of them because they all hit the, uh, the, um, hit the mark when it came to the highest rates of centenarians, but there was Sardinia, there was, uh, somewhere in Asia. I don't want to misquote it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was somewhere in South America as well. I'm bad. I can look it up right now if you want me to, but, uh, we can put on the notes if we, huh? yeah, they were all over. I'll send you, I'll send you some, uh, info for the episode notes. Yeah. The power nine, that's what it was. The nine, nine things. What about Greece? Greece Where'd was also rank? one. Yes, Greece was there. Was, was one of the was an area in Greece was one of the top um, was one of the zones recognized in the in the blue zones. Yeah, I'm Get looking those right Mediterranean now. Mediterranean salads, huh? I that think Greek I hit salad. everything. A sense of belonging. <laughs> loved ones come first. The 80 percent rule, where like they did eat mostly plants, but like 80 percent of their plate was all whole foods, mostly plants, and they weren't crazy about it. You know what I mean? They didn't go you know, all in, like must eat this. It just happened to be, but they're all kind of growing their own food, making their own food. It's pretty cool. Then that, yeah. yeah. It's I a mean, fascinating, it's, uh, fascinating look. I'm, I'm reading here. It's uh, Okinawa, Japan. Okinawa. That's uh, what it was. Uh -huh. Nicoya, Costa Rica, Costa Rica Icaria, Greece. Greece. Yeah. Ah, Loma Linda, California. Yes. So I guess. Sardinia. Jesus, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean it, it, you said it, you know, it's all about, uh, community and uh family and i guess majority of the u.s is just we're just stuck in such a rat race that we're just consumers consumption consumption and uh just go through sugar <laughs> like it's there's no tomorrow yeah but it's a shame. moving along mickey i wanted to we're gonna go into this what we call the cartel exchange you know okay. when i get uh, a little bit more personal with you in the sense of asking you three questions. And the first one is what moment did endurance played a big role in your life? You know, that kind of said, wow, you know, it's, you kind of feel like superhuman almost. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll say this when I first did my first marathon, which was in college, I, a friend of mine asked me on a whim, do you want, do you love running? I love running. Do you want to run a marathon with me? Do you want to run the Baltimore Marathon, which was where we where I went to college? I said, sure. How long is it? <laughs> I had no <laughs> idea how long a marathon was. Of course, I'd say that was my moment of uh, I did I trained for that. I ran all the time anyway, so I was like, okay, twenty six point two miles. Let's do this. Loved it. Finished that marathon with tons of like vigor and energy, and I knew, okay, I love this. You know, so I'd say that was my first moment of I love endurance. I love going long. Um, this feels really good. I saw people suffering. I still see people suffering when we do long endurance <laughs> events, both marathon, even half marathon and, you know, half and full Ironman. So that was that first time I'll say for sure. Uh, when I realized I, I like this sport because of the mental part of it, cause you are kind of talking to yourself the whole time. 
I'll say the second time this happened, and I'd say also the physical part, you know, how could you feel when you've trained well? But the second time I really realized this is it for, this is my thing. I can do this and, and I'm made for this and I love this was when I was training for my very first full Ironman and I did my, it was this monster brick that was built into kind of the later part of the training for the race. I think I was something like a month and a half or two months, probably two months out because the race was in late November. This was like somewhere in August, September. So two months out or so from the Ironman. It was that training day where I did something like a little over a hundred miles and then uh, on the bike and then hopped off and ran 10, which those of us in endurance sports, it's like, yeah, whatever. That's what you do when you're training. Right. But for me to do that the first time and to mentally get through that uh, by myself, <laughs> I did the ride with a friend, but then I ran by myself. My friend was like, I'm good. That was a fun ride. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was I had all these conversations with myself between getting the bike away and getting my shoes on. All of those conversations I had to shut down to get my butt in gear to go run. And it was that workout that proved to me how much how much the mental aspect is huge because we get mm -hmm. to that starting line not by accident you don't just sign up some people may but we don't just sign up for iron man events on a whim right yeah, and, and so tank it yeah you could tank it and that's going to feel like garbage but most of us are kind of type a want to prepare well want to do well get that a on the test right want to feel good at the end of it and so it wasn't until that w I completed that workout that I was like, I can do this. I'm going to do this yep. Ironman because it I had to fight the mental demons of, oh, but it's hot. Oh, maybe you could just go home and run this on the treadmill. Oh, maybe your bike will get stolen. Like all these things trying to say like, do you really want to go run right now? Don't you want to be in the AC? Like you have to fight it, you know, and, and doing that in training is everything because, yep. and I learned it then. So that was my wake up moment of like, okay, endurance is for you because everyone has those conversations. You're not the only one. It's a real breakthrough. It is a breakthrough. You draw on those moments when it, the going gets tough in races. You know, if you do the work in training, you can draw on those moments because you've been there, done that, and you did the mental work. For me, it was the mental, the physical work. I think we all can say we do that, right? Like, yep. it, you, if you cheat yourself on the physical work, you've, you learn your lesson once and you really don't have to learn it again. <laughs> The mental work is a little trickier because we don't talk about it as much. And it's a personal thing. It's a it's an individual thing. So for me, that was definitely and continues to be the biggest part of what sets uh, one apart in the competitive realm in endurance sports is, is have they done the mental work? Have they really done the mental work? I need to do to be prepared for race day for anything on race day. Yeah, you know? I, I can I cannot agree with you more there. I had a coach who as, as I was doing all those bricks, he would tell me, it's like, just get through those bricks on race day. Just remember each one of those bricks because you can easily have a bad day in training and bring that bad, bad day into your race day. Totally. And totally mess up your race. I mean, so that mental aspect of knowing what you did, how you did it and what feelings were going on, mm -hmm. although bring it into that race. Because yep. you've been there before and I can totally relate to that. And it's absolutely. And my next question to you and question number two, if you could name one person that inspired you to go that extra mile in your journey, it could be a triathlon, it could be your doctorate, it could be anything where you are as a, in, as a mother, as a woman overall, um, who is, I mean, who's that person that just 
it's like, man, this person really made a difference in my life. Ah, gosh, that one's a hard one. Because, you know, I leaned on my teammates. I had a group, a small group of us, less than 15, 12 of us that trained. We all had very consistent, similar goals of wanting to push ourselves. We were individuals with our own goals. So I have a pack of friends that I'll say, I'm going to collectively give them the mantle of that, uh, of, of who inspired me because each one of them brought to the table, their own life experience and their own struggles and their own, you know, schema of looking at the world that, that made me better, you know, we made each other better. So, I mean, one of those friends was a mom. I wasn't yet a mom and I still call recall some of those friends, not just one, two of them were moms and our moms, but they were getting it done, you know, as Ironman triathlete moms of little kids. And so I do, you know, look to them and looked around and now me and those that are, were a little younger, didn't have kids at the time who now have kids, you know, uh, we know they did it, we can do it. And, you know, and they, we saw them do it. Right. And, um, friends who were childless, but super high, um, career focused people getting it done. So I had, I was grateful and still have this inner network of, you know, diverse people in what I'll call my chosen family that was also in sport, still is in sport, but able to, able to get it done. Cause I don't want to say work-life balance and balance it all because I feel like those are cliched and overused. Uh, overused because uh, we all figure out a way to balance it, I suppose, because it may not always be balanced, <laughs> uh, but we get it done. We figure out a way to get it done, right? And maybe not in the perfect best way that we wanted it to happen, um, but we did get it done. And so, and they do get it done. So I think that inspired me the most to see like, okay, you know, uh, you're not the first person to complete an Ironman and also have 10 other things on your plate to do. You're not the first person to, you know, sign up for a race like this and, you know, have two little kids at home or whatever it may be. People do right. it and they find a way. So you find a way, you know what I mean? Is it worth it to you? You know, what does it mean to you? And so, um, all of those people in my, and I'll say they're called my wolf pack, my wolf pack family. We, uh, I, I love them near and dear and, uh, they continue to inspire me because not only were they exceptional and are they exceptional at sport and at what they put their minds to for sport, but they also are exceptional in their lives outside of sport doing great mm -hmm. things for humanity. <laughs> so yeah, I'll say and they I know a few, so me. I know yeah. who you're referring to and they're yeah. all amazing and, uh, yeah. I mean, it's kudos on that. Yeah. It's, you have a good group of, of uh, people around you. My third question to you would be, what piece of advice would you give our listeners, given all your experience that you've acquired as a mom, as a doctor, as a professor, as a triathlete or an athlete overall? What yeah. advice would you give all these our listeners? Okay. My advice, no matter where you are in your endurance athletic career, amateur or professional, is to understand that everything you put into this sport really does translate to somewhere else in life. For me, I learned that all the effort and mental and physical energy that went into doing my first Ironman applied itself so well once I became a mom. Some people may be getting into sport after being a mom, but for me personally, I know that doing all that preparation that's involved with being an endurance athlete and even frankly, a short course athlete, you know, there's so much preparation within triathlon, uh, that you have to be, if you sink or swim, if you're unprepared, right. And so this sport 
uh, really does prepare you for life. And so those times when you're thinking like, why am I here? Why am I doing the swim workout? Why am I on this bike doing all these miles? Circle back to kind of how this sport makes you better. Uh, all around, mm. whether you recognize it or not, uh, I promise you, it makes you better <laughs> uh, in one in more ways than you realize. And so, um, know that, know that uh, in those times when you're trying to dig deep, that you know you're setting an example not only for yourself, but and for the people around you, but for everyone around you in every part of your life, be it kids, mm-hmm. be it your spouse, be it your uh, colleagues. Be at the store clerk, you know, who is wondering who the heck you are, like smelling like chlorine at seven in the morning, buying breakfast or whatever it may be, right? Like, <laughs> who is this person? So you are, in, you are, it, it, your dedication to endurance sports, it, it has trickle down effect throughout just throughout your life, not just within the sport within. We like to think we're a niche community, which we are, but you are impacting more people than you realize. And you're applying the stuff that you're using in sport in other ways and more ways than you realize as well outside of sport. That's a, that's an amazing answer. I could have put it better myself. <laughs> I mean, basically how you do one thing is how you do everything. I mean, if I'm not. Absolutely. Yeah. Mickey, you have no idea the pleasure I've had having you on. Ah, it's been a pleasure. And it's been a wealth of information. And I know that you just gave us a lot of information, but not going to the nitty gritty because I know there's so much <laughs> underneath all that that you've mentioned here today because I'm going to invite you more often oh, and anytime, uh, we can discuss anytime. more topics even and uh, or just pick a topic of all the things sure. that we've discussed and go into, into all this. And you mentioned to me that you have, you're getting to, ready to launch a program correct with a uh, a coworker of yours I uh, with with a friend of mine uh, his name is Chuck Carroll he's known as the weight loss champion he's lost oh. a dramatic amount of weight over uh, several hundred pounds and he is a self-proclaimed food addict and he and I are launching what's um, called uh, eatsosimple.com. And it is a, a program that's meant to help people who are struggling with uh, what is deemed food addiction. If you feel like you have a loss of control over food intake, we're getting ready to launch. It's an eight-week program uh, that really, it's going to be piloted this, uh, this fall. So um, it's mm-hmm. the pilot version right now. But uh, he's seen such success in his own diet and lifestyle transformation that he has been craving helping others get through where he was. So uh, we are launching Eat So Simple soon, next month, November, and we're super excited about it. We're developing this really cool uh tool that people who deal with food addiction or feel like they have a loss of control over food intake can use to be able to look up how inherently addictive, so to speak, their food may be. Something that's super new that I hope to eventually, we will eventually publish, but also get into an academic realm with it and do some studies with it. But that's outside of the fact that it's made for uh, for regular people who feel like they need a little help uh, and guidance to get their, their food intake uh, in terms of their lack of control of it, perhaps uh, under control. So yeah, looking forward to that. Wow. I mean, food addiction, that's, uh, I can, I can openly say, I mean, I, I've been clean and sober for 25 years and uh, not because I was a food addict, but because I, I loved alcohol. I loved uh, uh, drugs, but it's been 25 years, but I can, I met a lot of food addicts and it's different because booze and drugs, I mean, yeah, it's, 
It's not like it's in your face. Food is in your face. Yeah. Um, and at your fingertips and can be and delivered at your, at your door, you know, exactly. in the privacy of your home. Yeah. It's another beast for sure. Both are terrible. <laughs> it's, I, I feel that if I would have to pick one, I mean, I'll pick mine. It's challenging. Yeah. And it's still struggling to be recognized uh, medically. So you can't even, unlike addiction to substances or drugs of abuse, you know, there's a medical definition. You can meet criteria to be diagnosed with and then treated for addiction. Food addiction is not there yet. It's getting there, but you can't prescribe any type of treatments for someone because they are quote unquote, a food addict, because we don't yet have that medical diagnosis. We're getting there. That's a whole other podcast for you and I to discuss, yeah. but uh, yeah. but uh, our hope with Eat So Simple is that we can reach people who are struggling with that and um, and hopefully find them some hope. So that's the plan. Mickey, wow. I'm beyond thankful, beyond <laughs> inspired in with all your knowledge that you have uh, shared with us today. It's my pleasure. Always, yes, anytime. Thank Javier. you. And all that, everything that we've discussed, it's going to be on our show notes, as well as the links to your Instagram. I meant to ask you what your Instagram, I mean, you don't, did you, are you going to post all this on your Instagram as well? Uh, your program? Yes, I will. I'll share it there as well. Mickey Eats Plants is my, uh, my Instagram. I have a personal Instagram too, but that's, you know, if you want to see my dog and my kids, you know, that's Dr. <laughs> Mickey Witt. Uh, but the one that's got all the fun food is Mickey Eats Plants. But yeah, feel free to follow either one. We're going to have the Eat So Simple, uh, its own Instagram handle being launched shortly soon too. We are, we are so excited. We're in the talks of getting the website launched any day now. By the time this air, this episode airs, it probably will be launched by then. So uh, yeah, moving ahead. I love it. I love it. And yes, we're going to be helping you promote it anywhere we can, any, any, how we can. I mean, it's uh, through any means possible to help you. It's it's such a, it's kudos. I take my hats off for that. Thank you. My pleasure. To our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to just another great episode of Endurance Cartel. And don't forget to look at our Patreon and uh, just uh, share some love with us and uh, subscribe to our podcast anywhere you listen to our podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, kid you not, we're everywhere. And I look forward to seeing you, Mickey, one more time in the near future. I hope so. Thank you so much, guys. Train smart, eat smart as well. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Endurance Cartel. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, subscribe to the podcast and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Join our cartel by supporting us on Patreon and receive other perks. Hey, why not? Maybe even become a guest. Ah, I almost forgot. Join our website at endurancecartel.com. And if you like, leave us a message with a question or topic that interests you. And we may even feature it on our future episode. You can also find more information about our episodes by visiting our blog and subscribing to our newsletter. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Same place, same vibes. Be good. Endurance Cartel.